Welcome to Soundpost, dedicated to exploring the meaning of orchestral music in today's world through the lives of its leading artists. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I'm Raul Gomez. And today we're speaking with Javier Gandara from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Javier. Hello. Very nice to be here with you. Are you in New York? I am in New York, yes. Sequestered in, in our apartment. It's been quite an experience. Uh, uh, being in a city where it, it, that is known for, for its institutions with all of them closed. Times Square is just a few blocks from where we live, and we're used to seeing so many people. You know, it's a, we usually choose an hour of the day when we go shopping where there's the least amount of people, and now uh, there's nobody around. It's just very eerie and very strange. Yeah, and yeah. of course, you've played with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra since 1999, is that right? 99, yeah. What do you guys think we would be doing if this had happened 25 years ago? I can't imagine. I don't know what, oh, Carlos, what do, you, what do you think? It, it would have been impossible, right? We'd be speaking on the telephone. Actually, in five weeks, I hadn't thought about this, uh, Raul, but it's, it's fascinating. I cannot imagine. Uh, and but at the same time, it saddens me to think um, that there are maybe a lot of people who, in, in our corners of the world, who don't have uh, internet. Sometimes uh, we take it as a given, some things that are not available for everyone. There's still whole towns and communities where internet is unavailable. Uh, so the difference between the haves and have-nots in this uh, is, 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 is very, very sad. So 25 years ago, maybe we would have suffered in a different way. But of course, you, you can't take out your instrument because you, 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 you cannot play over, over the mask. But if you were a violinist, would you be allowed to take your violin and play in the park? Probably not, because what happens is that if you would be, if you would play, people would be gathering around you, and that's that's a no no. Uh -huh. For example, they found that people wanted to play basketball, <laughs> even though of the you know what we're going through. So they the the city had to take off from their boards the the basketball rims. <laughs> they just unscrewed them and took them away. So now there's no way people can play. <laughs> There was a skateboard park that people were using too much, so they dumped truckloads of, of sand <laughs> so that the skateboarders wouldn't wouldn't come and use it and congregate. Yeah. But then then mountain bike people uh, <laughs> liked the sand, so they started using it uh, instead of the skateboard people. It's it's uh, people want to socialize no matter what. But I think uh, Carlos, to to answer your question, performing is gone. Mm -hmm. I mean. Uh, at least for now, and and who knows for for how long, right? We're trying to take care of the institutions so they'll be there for you know for the future. But when is 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 the big question? Because it's not only when we will be able to perform together, but when will people feel comfortable enough to buy tickets to come to the to the hall? Yeah, right. And and now of course we have this. We have the technology. So uh, an orchestra could gather and put out a live performance and stream it. And we, you know, people can enjoy it at home. But then, 
you know, people that don't have a great setup, like you were saying, not everybody lives the same way, will will be able to uh, enjoy this at various degrees of, of resolution. Yeah, what can you get from a live performance that you cannot get from something that's that you're experiencing through a screen? I, I think that when you gather with a lot of people and you 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 share a performance with that group of people, it, it feels different. Uh, uh, there's it's something very human about it. Uh, I think that the easiest way of understanding this and something that everybody can relate to is the difference between seeing a movie at home on Netflix or on video and going to a theater with uh, 450 people and enjoying that movie. And what happens is that when you see, when you're moved by something in a, in a theater, even in a movie house that's kept dark, when you're moved or when you laugh, when you have a reaction, a human reaction to what's being experienced through the, the, the movie that you're watching, and you share that with the audience around you, it's a totally different experience than watching at home. And everybody can, can nod and, and say, yes, of course, I, I felt that. I, I felt that many times. I see a comedy and uh, it's funnier when you see it in the movies, of course, because everybody else is laughing. When you see um, music being performed, it, it, it can be also moving and, you know, it's, it's, you're reacting all the time to what you're hearing. And, and even uh, noticing people reacting to what is happening around you creates a, 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 you know, a different reaction to what you're, you're experiencing. Uh, you, you're there. It's a formal activity. You, you walk in, you enjoy the building, which theaters are very dramatic because that's their design to, to be um, beautiful and, and, and um, welcoming. So you feel that. Then you sit. You're excited because of the, the performance. And then you, you can feel everybody walking in. Uh, and, and starting the performance. If a theater gets dark, performance started, it's, it's very exciting uh, to be there. It's felt, it's palpable. Not, not something that you're just watching on the screen. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you're reacting to everything that's happened. We talked about the, the um, um, things that, that sometimes, if, it, if it's not a live performance but recorded, can be cut. For example, imperfections in the live performance. Uh, I remember uh, a great, one of the best, most memorable performances I saw at Carnegie was a Minnesota orchestra uh, playing. And uh, for some reason, the lights went out for like 20 seconds and they kept on, they kept on playing like nothing happened. And then lights came back on and, and they continued uh, the concert. And I still re remember thinking maybe that would have been cut from a, you know, uh, uh, video presentation or, uh, or they, they wouldn't even have performed that piece. Maybe they would have been eliminated. Being there for that was, was, was very special because of everybody's reaction to it as well. And everybody's talking about it after. And, um, so, you know, things happen in live performances that you cannot replicate, but, but now, um, you know, I watched the Berlin Philharmonic, uh, um, perform regularly because we can, right? You can go on your computer and watch it, and it's very rewarding. I, I, I get a lot from it. But uh, I wish I were there every time. I think the big question on everybody's mind is what will a performance look like in the future? In, in your case, being 
you know, part of one of the most incredible musical institutions in the world, the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, it, it's it's also an institution that's that's extremely essential for the city. Yet, uh, it's 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 the one that uses the most people for everything. Um, have there been conversations? Uh, and of course, maybe these are, uh, you cannot share some things, but about maybe uh, chamber opera, um, about thinking in a different way. I'm just thinking completely aloud. I mean, instead of having a theater with 2,000 people, have a theater with 300 people and an orchestra with 20 uh, and uh, four singers on stage separated. Has there been any of this? Because in in my in my world, which is not operatic, there are all kinds of um, things being talked about uh, as far as how we can perform as soon as maybe September or August or wh whatever. But it, I was thinking in the opera world, are you, is this even being analyzed? It's funny that you mentioned the chamber uh, opera because we were about to perform uh, for the very first time, uh, the Met Opera and with Yannick Nesesegan, we're going to do uh, a new opera in the Brooklyn Academy, uh, which was a much smaller uh, chamber uh, opera. So it's something that he was thinking about expanding our, our repertoire um, uh, even before this happened. But I think that it would be probably more practical to use our house in the future, because let's say that they limit activities for 500 people, right? We could perform for 500 people. You don't have to fill the house, especially if you're streaming online. So you could stream the performance for people to enjoy at home and have five, 500 people in a house that seats almost 4,000 people sitting very far from each other, which would be the safest way to to go to a performance, right? Uh, instead of playing in a smaller house for 500 people, use a large house. To me, one thing is, uh, of course, there's a, there's a financial economic factor, but I, I, I think that, at least for me, what's very important is the, uh, the human factor of reconnecting with an, an audience little by little. Uh, one thing which I, I, I'm trying to plan for a season in Mexico is for a season that would initially be similar to uh, varied chamber music, small ensembles, uh, it, and, and little by little building it up as, as, as time allows. That, so for, for me, I... I just have a feeling that I wanted to share this with with whoever is listening to us that very soon or soon sooner than we think people will need performers uh people will need to see somebody playing jazz on the street or will need that kind of uh motivation sooner than we think and more than we think. So uh, what, what pains me and it's a, it is, is that the economic reality 
may not allow it. Uh, but I, I, I want to share with you a couple of things that, that for me were motivating. Uh, they unfortunately happened in Germany. <laughs> I don't say unfortunately because I don't like Germany. It's just I'm, I'm saying it, they don't happen. They didn't happen in Mexico or in the United States, which are where we are. Uh, but one of the first things that Angela Merkel said is that orchestras were uh, declared an essential business or an essential part of the economy and would be taken care of and saved. To me, this was such an illuminating, uh, illuminating statement to, to, for a, a leader and a world leader to say, this is important and it will be taken care of. And I, I, you know, there's something so powerful about an opera, about an orchestra, that I can only dream that, that you know, someday uh, our, our, our countries will understand that and that not everything will depend on the generosity of, of uh, the people who are very wealthy, but that governments uh, understand that New York, without the Metropolitan Museum, without the Metropolitan Opera, without the New York Philharmonic, without Carnegie Hall, is not New York, okay? And it, 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 this that is in, in, in Latin America, the first things that will go back will be the churches and the theaters because that's such an important part in some way. It's such an important part of communal life that we haven't even discussed here in Mexico uh, how, but we are obsessed to see how we will go back to people. Uh, but we have the safety net of the government. But it pains me that institutions as essential as the one you represent uh, should even go through the pain of not knowing whether it will exist or in what way. It just, to me, it's impossible to imagine that a airline company is bailed out while the Metropolitan Opera is not bailed out, okay? That to me, it's like my heart is aching because that is a kind of uber capitalism that I wish we could, we could avoid. And, you know, why do I say I wish? Because I still hope that somebody will come up with some way to save the musical institutions of the United States and to say to musicians like you, rest assured, this is a parenthesis, and rest assured we will protect you. Because when you look at the big picture, and you know, you're know you in Midtown New York, you don't have to go very far to see colleagues of yours who work in Wall Street, the numbers, are such that uh, it's 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 not a drop in the pond, but it's not such a huge number to save an institution such as yours. Of course, then the next argument is, 
where do you draw the line and which institutions are essential or not, which is one of the big problems. But I'm just putting it out there how painful it is to feel like the safety net is not there for orchestras. So going back to before all of this started, uh, what uh, Javier and, and both of you, I mean, you, you, Javier, you play, like Carlos said, with one of the best orchestras in the world. And Carlos, you conduct some of the best orchestras in the world. Uh, what are your personal favorite aspects of that ritual? For me, it's connecting with the audience. Um, I, I cannot tell you um, many times, you know, when you perform almost every night, um, it becomes like everything it becomes a routine, you know. Uh, especially when you play, uh, when I played operas uh, with symphony musicians, it would be repertoire that you do very often. With us, it would be operas that we do very often. So you, you know, show up to work, warm up, ready to perform. You go out, you play Bohème again, and uh, you may feel like it's nothing special because I've done it many times. But then I look at the audience and I always remind myself, there are people out there that are listening to this for the first time. And there are others who are back because they came years ago and this is the one chance they have to see it again. And for them, this is, this is a special moment. It, it really is. And you see it in their expressions. Whenever there's a moment in the opera when I'm not actually playing, when I'm, I have bars of rest, and it's a moment where the, the stage is illuminated in a way that you can see people's faces in the audience very clearly. I always like to look out and see people's expressions because it, it is very satisfying to me. There are moments where you just see pure joy in, you know, in, 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 at a glance, you could see from where I'm sitting at least a thousand people and it's, they have all the same expression and, and, it is a very special thing to, to see. For me, it's also about the audience. I'm actually, Javier, a huge opera fan and an opera buff. And whenever, Raul knows I use my bike to ride to concerts and rehearsals. I'm always listening to operas. And I think the reason is that I don't do them or that I do them so seldom that it's a world of somebody else that I can enjoy and get to learn. And it's not, I don't know these pieces like you do, so I can listen to them and they still sound like I'm discovering. And when I go to an opera and there's an aria that touched my heart, and then somebody writes in the paper that da, 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 and it's all this clinical stuff. To me, it's like, wait, 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 you're taking away this joy for me. I, I just share, share with you another experience that has to do with the Met. There were, hopefully will be again, many flights between Mexico City and New York. And at odd times of day, meaning that you can fly, that you can leave Mexico City at 2 a.m., get into New York at 6, and then you can leave New York at 2 and get back at 7. And I use these flights because of my crazy life. You would, you would be surprised at how many people from Mexico save money for you, for, to, to hear you play Gutter Demerol. And that's a once in a lifetime experience for them. Now, 
very, very expensive experience for those people. But they don't have to go to a hotel. They save for the plane. They go to hear Wagner. And immediately after Wagner is over, they go back to the airport and they go back to the plane. And that is a, an experience for which they save year-long year salary or something like that. I, I tell you this, that so that, and I, I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure, but the many, many people who hear us think that symphony music, opera is for the learned, for the rich, you, you need to dress a certain way. You need to have such knowledge and whatever. This is BS completely. It's not true because the person who I talked to who went to hear Gutter Demerung had never been to an opera before and picked that one. And I said, well, you picked a good one because you're going to be there for a long time. And by the time it's over, you're going to be bowled over. So uh, this, again, the once in a lifetime thing is what makes the difference. Uh, like in theater, it's different to see Shakespeare on, on a, you know, on, on a film than to see Shakespeare with an actor such as Ian McKellen or somebody like that, who is making it a once in a lifetime experience and who could even screw up and look at the audience and laugh and say, oh, I skipped the line, something like that. But the uniqueness is, for me, what makes it. It's both the uniqueness and the fact that so many people put so much effort to be there. And that, that is why we have to find a way to be back. And we have to find a way to save every single artistic institution. And I'm so glad you mentioned theater because I was thinking that one of my favorite aspects of live performing is the unpredictability of, of a live performance, right? My wife is a theater actor and uh, very often I get to know her plays really well because, you know, I read lines with her at home and I go to three or four rehearsals and dress rehearsals. So then I go to see the show. And uh, if an actor drops a line and, and I'm aware of it, because I, you know, I've been uh, spending time with her on the play, then my heart suddenly starts racing, and it's super, It's so cool to see how the other actors respond to that. Javier, you told the story of the Minnesota Orchestra and the lights going out for a few seconds. I was wondering if you guys have any stories like that 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 have happened to you in performance. Countless times, sure. <laughs> you know, very often you'll see that somebody in the cast is sick. So the one of the stage managers comes out and as they come out with a microphone, the audience will start booing because they know what's coming. <laughs> they know that somebody is, is, is sick and they don't know who. It could be the star, it could be you know one of the cast. So, so sometimes they'll come out and we'll, they'll say, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and people will go, oh, you know, and then they, they're always nervous. And you see this, you know, so many people reacting vocally. And you, so it, it becomes a loud noise. <laughs> and the manager will say, 
so-and-so, the star, is not feeling well tonight. So you see here, oh. And then, but they've agreed to sing anyway, please. Uh, they ask for your understanding. And then it turns into joy, right? So you see the down and the up. <laughs> and this happens not very often, but but often enough when you've been there for years and years so that you know what what's exactly what's going to come. Where very few times will the singer pull out completely and then the understudy comes. But... I, I tell you, sometimes that happens and the understudy becomes a star <laughs> because uh, they come out and they do, do a job and, and, and all of a sudden it becomes so exciting. Uh, one of the most exciting times that I've really, it, pure excitement that I felt in the pit was Natalie Desai could not sing a performance of Julius Caesar, uh, Handel's Julius Caesar. And we had... Um, a replacement and she was just so spectacular and the energy coming it wasn't just that it was a virtuoso performance but the energy coming from the the singer was was such that i, I i'll never forget that I, I i was just you know like an audience member clapping <laughs> and and feeling this uh, enormous joy it was very impressive so anyway, uh, um, there there are many many moments like that, right? And things happen. Sometimes the curtain is not working, <laughs> so we have to sit there for five minutes while they they fix the curtain, and everybody's patient. And you think that in a, a place like that, that puts out you know two hundred and fifteen performances a year, things will be running perfectly, and they do for the most part. It's amazing how so many people come together to to work and make it flawless uh, night after night with a house that puts basically, and the people aren't, I think, aware of this, but, you know, we put, put seven performances a week. And during the day, they're rehearsing a different opera on stage. So the stagehands have to tear down the rehearsal stage and put on the, the evening. So it's a, it's, a, it's a huge undertaking. And like Carlos Miguel was saying, it's, it's large. But I, I, I have to say that in... in a few cities in the world, some of these institutions are not local. Like Raul, you were saying that concerts and, and, and these kind of cultural activities bring the community together. And in New York, it's a very international community that comes together for the Met. Like Carlos Miguel was saying, people fly in to see some of these performances. And some people fly in. I was talking to a, a lady once from the Dominican Republic who told me that the Met allows her to fly in Friday night, uh, on Friday morning, I'm sorry, and see three different operas in two days. So she'll go to the performance on Friday night, the matinee on Saturday, and the evening performance on Saturday, which is three different operas. And so she'll get to enjoy three operas and then go home on Sunday morning. So she only spends two nights in the city and she can see three different productions you know three different operas and then go home and you know feel like she's she's had her fix of opera for for a while and if it's something that you cannot do very often you know there's only a few cities in the world where you can do that right um and 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 also you know to point out uh, the world you know it's becoming smaller maybe and this institution brings us all together if if you and i found ourselves, the three of us, would found ourselves in London, right? Just as tourists. 
we would probably bump into each other at some point because we would ge- e- go either to a concert in the Barbican or see a Covent Garden, see an opera, and we would all bump into each other in those in those places. Um, I remember, you know, my father was once working in London and he went to hear an opera, right? He went to hear Tales of Hoffman um, uh, because Klaus was, Alfredo uh, Klaus was, was singing and it was something that he did so well. My father said, I got to go hear it. And he bumped into three other people from Puerto Rico. He had no idea where were in London at the time, but they all went, had the same idea, went to the opera and, and, and saw each other there and ended up having dinner together after. So these are uh, institutions that bring the, you know, the world together and, and, and that's why they're so important. Javier, since uh, we are, the three of us joined and f- from a long time ago uh, by this amazing uh, orchestra of the Americas, uh, one, one thing which I think is fascinating is how many uh, life-altering experiences we've had and in some places that um, are or unexpected. When we went to Panama with Paquito de Rivera, we decided to play Dvorak uh, New World Symphony, which, if you if you remember, has a third horn part that is quite important. Uh, And uh, we had two Panamanian horn players, an American and a a Canadian. And the American and the Canadian were the first and second horn players. And one of the Panamanians was third and another was was fourth. And I remember that when pom, 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 beam, that happened, the first time there was no sound. This kid was like lost and not knowing. And then we got to know this kid. This kid had, I think you may even know him. He had no, no hand, okay? That's right, right hand. The, the right hand. And I had already been a conductor for about 20 years. And I had never known that you could play the horn and not have a right hand and be able to play the instrument. Well, I can tell you that within a week of rehearsals, that kid made New World Symphony, for me, be part of Panama. You know, there's so, so much that we, that, that we need to do as educators, as leaders, as teachers, yeah. that the last thing we have to do is lose hope. What we need is a different way of doing things. Millions, millions of people in Latin America need our help and see music in a different way so that the future can only be bright. It helps me to think of myself as less of an artist than as a social servant in the future. And, and, and that gives me hope. Musicians will be needed. And if they're not allowed to play in Amsterdam or in Berlin, they will be needed in Rio de Janeiro, in, in San Juan, in San Jose, in Limon, in places where the association of music and audiences is different. Absolutely. A few little additions to your stories, Carlos. <laughs> and we can cut this out if, if it's not appropriate to keep in the podcast. But the Limon concert. Yes. Uh, I mean, you, you, you probably remember this because it was delayed so much. Yes. 
the orchestra somehow found beer. Uh, so that made that concert also special in, in a different way. Happy. <laughs> to abound on the, on the topic of alcohol and music, uh, uh, we had a memorable uh, crossing of a border between Salvador and Guatemala, where for all our non-Latin American friends, I want, I want to reassure you, bureaucracy does exist in Latin America. Um, and, and it is sometimes Kafka at work. And somehow the authorities decided that we needed some kind of missing paperwork to make it through the border. And you had three buses full of musicians waiting in the border. Well, somebody, and it's always a brass player. I'm sorry, it's always a brass player found the alcohol. And it was on the third level of a restaurant. And suddenly it became a party. And I remember the Brazilian trumpet player saying to the rest, hey, I have an idea. How about if we just all go inside this office and we just start playing Tico Tico as loud as we can. And maybe they'll just let us go. <laughs> exactly the following happened. We stormed into the office of all these bureaucrats and started playing music. And within 20 minutes, we were across the border. I remember this as being these amazing experiences. And you know something I once saw at, at the Met, one thing which is going to make you smile. It was in one of the long Mahler operas and I was up there and uh, one of your tuba players, you know, because you, you get so many long breaks and stuff. Uh, he, was, he was chewing gum. <laughs> and whenever, I'm, I'm not kidding, this is a real anecdote. He was like chewing gum. And whenever he would have to play, he would take out the gum, put it in the back of his horn, play, and then take back the gum. And this is real. <laughs> Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, one, one, one thing I found interesting was to see from up there how many people actually leave and come back. Right. And then one of your colleagues told me that you can even go home and have dinner and come back because, uh, because sometimes an act may, may, may be two hours long. <laughs> yeah, there are some operas where the trombones and trumpets have long time. Yeah, for sure. So Javier, as we remember these moments in the past and with all of the uncertainty of the present, Looking into the future, are you optimistic? I am very optimistic. I'm just uh, weary of, of uh, you know, the institutions that I know and how they will survive. But for sure, there'll be others coming and, and uh, maybe these will survive as well. But if not, we're in good hands and uh, things are, will always look, look good for the future for, for musicians because we'll always find places to perform connect with audiences, and this, these are the best experiences. Like, we, 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 we agree on that. So it's, it's important for communities. It's important for, for, for the world to have this connection. 
My last thing, I want to read uh, to you uh, something that I got from uh, Jesse Rosen of the League of American Orchestras and who some of us know and, and uh, hold in great esteem. He says, as we enter the third month of the global pandemic and consider the uncertainty and tough road ahead, I'm reminded of a lesson made popular by business guru Jim Hollins, the Stockdale paradox. Admiral James Hockdale was a Navy pilot captured in the Vietnam War and tortured over a period of six years. He survived and upon returning home, wrote about his experience in captivity and reflected on the prisoners who lived and those who died. Stockdale observed that the ones who survived were the ones who could hold two completely opposite ideas at the same time. One, the recognition that their situation was brutal and unrelenting. And two, the unwavering conviction that they would still prevail. And I, I send a greeting to, to Jesse and pay homage to the people who are on the front line and also understand the gravity of what we're going through. Yet we have to have the absolute hope that we will prevail. And, and for me, that's what, that and my family is what drives my, my day. I want to thank Javier Gandara. Muchas gracias, Javier. I want to thank you and I want to send you from far away a big hug and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I'm Raul Gomez. See you all next time. Post is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas Group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org backslash soundpost to learn more.